This episode is brought to you by HP+. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are. Even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh, that is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Welcome to Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath, where experienced leaders share their own brand of leadership to help you develop and improve your own leadership capabilities. And now, here's your host, Dr. Gary. Well, hello again, this is Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassion, accountability. Welcome again to Leading from the Front, Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. And we're going to welcome back again today, David Nason, who is our expert on hiring and some of the things that he's come up with over the years that will help us understand the mistakes that we make as leaders, because hiring the right people is the most important thing we can do. I talk to leaders all the time about having strong teams, smart teams, diverse teams, and teams that add value through trust and conflict because they have a diversity of ideas and backgrounds. And I think that we make the mistake with that sometimes, but I'm gonna let the expert talk about that and why we make these mistakes. Uh, so welcome, David, how you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. Thank you uh, for having me back on. I, I'm, I'm pretty excited about having you back on because I think that uh, Often the mistakes that we make, uh, we make without thought, without uh, really knowing, uh, unconsciously. And you've studied this for many years, for decades. So let's talk about this. Yeah. Some areas of, I think one of the things that you mentioned was bias. And unconscious bias, I think, is the most important thing that we can talk about. So talk to me about that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I appreciate that. It's interesting, right? Because... Um, you know, there are a lot of words that uh, people put in front of bias, but the neuromechanism is the same, no matter whether it has a title to it or not, whether it's um, unconscious bias. Our brains are, are wired to make as many automatic decisions as possible and as few strategic decisions as possible. And it's for uh, very simple reasons. That's for to conserve energy, right? And, and for, uh, for survival. And, uh, my journey to uncover the locks, if you will, uh, to this challenge has been, as, as you said, it's been many years. Uh, this goes back 15 plus years, probably. Yeah, and we, we talked about that in the first program about how you got started and where you came from. Um, don't want to repeat all that. But what I what I do want to talk about is that journey that this took you. How did you become aware you know, was it through education? Was it through experience? Was it a combination of many things, coaching? You know, we, we usually have that awareness moment, that epiphany where it hits us. We're like, oh my gosh, uh, we're doing this wrong. Yeah, 100%. There were really two uh, for me. One was fairly early in my career where I did not understand, if you will, why exactly, uh, you know, a hiring manager would make a choice, a hiring choice, it seemed to fly in the face of all of the evidence, <laughs> if you will, 
right? All of the facts, um, the situation. I can, I won't name any names for all the right reasons, but um, you know, it was it was a running conversation. If you send uh, someone from Notre Dame to such and such, they will hire them. If you send an ex, you know, college football player to such and such, you know, they will they will hire them. Um, you know, if you send a Charlie's Angels, <laughs> you know, model uh, to to such and such, then then they'll hire them. And uh, it was fascinating to me. I, I had a diverse uh, team myself. Um, I think I mentioned it before that they they called us uh, the Dirty Dozen. You know, I had twelve people at the time, and uh, they were twelve individuals. And the the reason that I hired those individuals was because I hired them for a specific job and a specific team that they were going to support. And I didn't think about whether or not necessarily that they would get along. It's not that they wouldn't get along with me, um, but I had no problem modifying my team, culture, um, et cetera, in order to accommodate different types of personalities, because ultimately that's what led to us being really successful. So you know, that was one where I really wanted to know, um, how, how can I break through to this audience? How can I convince them of the facts that are, that are in front of them? The other one was when I was asked to, to join a uh, Oracle was uh, creating a committee, an executive committee for, for diversity. And I was asked to go out to the inaugural uh, meeting, which was interesting. I don't think we're on camera, right? People can't see me, but I'll just, I'll just state the facts. Okay. So <laughs> I'm a, I'm a Boston guy, right? Grew up in new England. Um, I look anything, you know, but uh, diverse and kind of one of the pre-work items, if you will, right. That the, the person, the, the vice president who was putting this together, uh, Liz Snyder, a uh, great lady, really smart. Um, she asked everybody to bring something to this meeting that represented diversity in their life. And um, I, I knew I was in a somewhat, I'll, I'll just call it, I call it often the an uncomfortable disadvantage in that situation. And it's uncomfortable because anytime you talk about race or gender, it's uncomfortable, right? I think that kind of, you know, you have to say that out loud, right? Um, it is, it's uncomfortable. And so I went to the meeting and people had all kinds of, you know, fantastic you know, things. And uh, it was interesting. I went with a peer of mine and she brought something. And so when it was my turn, I stood up and I had a picture in my hand of uh, my brother's graduation from college. And I, I handed it around and I, I, I told uh, folks, I said, uh, you know, if you look at this picture, this looks like your kind of typical white, if you will, all right, New England uh, family. You know, you've got a mom and a dad and, uh, you know, three boys uh, and a girl, but what you can't necessarily see um, by looking at this picture is both of my parents were born in 1930, right? They grew up during the depression. My dad, um, his, uh, his brother died in World War II. My dad was a Korean War vet. My mom was a first-generation American. My oldest brother and my sister both adopted. My oldest brother is gay. My sister is autistic. My brother and I were born later in life, right? So, when you look at this picture, you don't see diversity necessarily. But when you hear the story, you understand this is a very diverse family, right? Multi-generational, war veteran, first-generation American. We really do represent a lot of what other people are as well, if that makes sense. So why do you make that point? Well, I make that point because, you know, I think that 
um, this conversation, the conversation around diversity and bias, I think they're inextricably linked. And I think it should be part of the conversation. And I think that at the core of this, right, is bias. It's how our brains work. Our brains are wired to, to make these decisions and create these patterns, right, and, and understand people as fast as possible, even without understanding them at all. So my point was, you look at this picture, and you have one automatic perception of this of these, you know, six people, right? But the reality is very different. And our similarities, and the things that make us human, right, there's a lot more commonality between us than there are differences. And those differences, when viewed as as things that are, um, are rich and interesting, right? and fun, and make for uh, a beautiful experience, then the conversation is very, very different. Does that make sense? Yeah, so quite often when we when we talk to leaders about this, I ask the question to kind of tee this whole conversation up about diversity. Do you consider yourself open-minded or closed-minded? And that will create a, a sense in them because people almost always say, well, I'm open-minded. Right. That's great. So let's talk about diversity. And the reason when we talk about diversity, that gender and race is uncomfortable is first of all, because at times we don't talk about it enough. Right. If we talk about it more openly, people become more comfortable with the conversation. A good friend of mine, Rupert Nacost, Dr. Rupert Nacost is a social psychologist at uh, North Carolina State University right here in Raleigh. And he's done a lot of work on this and a lot of work on diversity. And what he taught me was, is that most of the time, the challenge is that we just don't have a good vocabulary to even have the conversation. And we need to be talking about diversity instead of race and gender or other separators based on the way we sound or look or see. And we do find that we have many, many more things that we connect with than things that separate us. If we take the time to be open-minded, and accept that diversification. Yep. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think that there are um, the other thing that I like that's come out in the last few years is to change um, the conversation by changing the title. Right? Um, it was diversity um, ten years ago. Uh, today, it's diversity, and then it became diversity and inclusion. Right? So that's good. It's not just enough good enough to be diverse. People, everyone needs to be included as well. And then the third one um, is even more recent, which is belonging. So today people talk about those organizations or that strategy within companies as diversity, inclusion, and belonging, which I think uh, is a beautiful thing. I think that's perfect. Well, belonging is uh, interesting. You should say that because Maslow's hierarchy of needs had belonging at the third level. And what they found is actually they've redesigned it where security and physical well-being and a sense of purpose and actualization are actually around the outside of a circle and at the center of it is belonging. That our greatest need as human beings is to feel a sense of belonging. So organizations that can hire people with that value of caring for others, of being part of an organization, wanting to be part of a team, put the ego aside, um, and I will say are open-minded and what you said about uh, bias and getting back to that topic is bias and prejudice are not the problem. It's being unaware of our bias and prejudice that's the problem. Yeah. 
because our brain works, the neuroscience, I don't need to tell you this, you know this, the <laughs> neurosciences, we fill in the blanks. Our brain mm -hmm. automatically will look at you and I'll make assumptions. Yeah, that's right. It's not making the assumption that's a problem. It's not questioning the assumption that's the problem. It's not 100%. aware of the assumption. Yep. And looking at the picture of your family, and I could assume, I say, oh, wow, they look like a normal family. So David, tell me about your family. And you start telling me all this stuff like, wow, wow, this is really, you start about the depth of humanity. That's right. And you have tremendous diversity in all of these things. So how does that relate to business leadership, not just the awareness of bias, but in the hiring process, what, what goes wrong? What are we doing here? Yeah, so I'll tell you exactly how I have learned uh, to tackle that. And our work as well has been informed by many preeminent neuroscientists and, and, and uh, experts on, uh, on bias, including Mazarin Benali, uh, who created the implicit bias test. Um, and so here's how I approach this, uh, this subject, because it's very, very important. And what I do is I separate the, the science, if you will, right, and how our brains work uh, from the emotion. And, and I call it out. Say, so here's, you know, what we're going to spend some time, you know, on here this morning or afternoon or whatever it happens to be uh, um, to talk about bias, right? And this is how the brain works. Our brains are wired to make, um, there's two different types of decision making. And if people want to dig into this stuff, it's a lot of fun. Uh, Danny Kahneman um, has uh, some brilliant work on this. Dan O'Reilly as well out of Duke has, uh, and of course, Amos and Tversky originally created what they called system one and system two thinking. And so um, if I, if people could see this visual, if you will, um, I say that, you know, the conversation around diversity and uh, discrimination, okay, is a hard, hot, if you will, uh, subject. And that sits kind of straight in our heart, right? And if you imagine taking that conversation, right, taking that bright red energy, if you will, and pulling it up, okay, like it looks like the sun that should shine down on all of us during this conversation, but we're going to keep it there up above and we're going to talk about the science. And this is how it, your, our brains work. Um, and you can shift from by being aware. That's the whole thing. A bias is an is a unconscious decision. It is something that you do without thinking. Your brain is actually thinking and making a decision. You're just not aware of it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So using yeah. a lot of these words, and I encourage people to, to, in this conversation, not to use these words like inherent bias, implicit bias, all these different kinds of biases, right, that people have put labels on, because the mechanism inside our brains is the same. And so in an interview process, um, what I encourage people and, and instruct folk uh, to do is to write down those initial impressions on a piece of paper, write them down, okay, and then forget about them for the time being as you're going through an interview process, as you're deciding who to interview first, and then as you're going through an interview process, write down those first impressions. And then after that meeting, after that interview, go back and how many of those things that were your first impressions of this individual, how many of them have a corollary value to both performance and satisfaction in role? And by doing that, it's interesting uh, where somebody went to school, where they came from, whether or not they have an accent or not. Those things melt away because when they look at them on a piece of paper, they realize 
they don't matter, right? It's the person. It's the person. Right? I mean, how many times have we read a resume? I, I hired a lot of salespeople in my day, and you read a resume and you go, wow, this, this resume looks pretty pretty cool. You know, and I, I would feel the bias in my head going, there's a lot of good things here, but, you know, it doesn't mean anything until you meet the person. No, no. I hate to I hate to bring up this example, but I'm going to. There was okay. a guy on Shark Tank a couple of weeks ago, and he's the first person who's been asked to come back to Shark Tank. And he was asked to come back to Shark Tank because of his resume. And the way his resume reads is he is he was a uh, he's a veteran of our armed services, right? He is a uh, a Harvard uh, or Yale undergraduate and a Harvard MBA, but yet his two business ideas were terrible business ideas. No one would invest with them because they're terrible. And it's so funny. They were talking, they're having this conversation. They're like, you have such a, you're, you're welcome to come back on for a third time. And I wanted, I wish I was there. I would have you know, stood up and said, Hey, Mr. Wonderful. <laughs> no. Okay. You're being biased by the fact that this individual has accomplished things in the armed services, right? Very noble. Um, this person was accepted into, you know, Yale undergraduate, right? That's a very hard thing to do. Yeah. Um, they were accepted and they graduated from Harvard with an MBA. That's a very difficult thing to do. But in terms of a individual who has uh, the creativity and all of the various different things, right, that are absolutely important, they are performance indicators in role, right? Smart guy, great guy. He doesn't have any of them. <laughs> what do all three of those situations have in common for this individual on Shark Tank? Yeah. Military, Yale, Harvard. What do all three of those situations have in common that do not relate to the skills of entrepreneurship at all? Well, interesting. So I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm curious to hear you know, what you'd have to say. And my answer to that would be that, what, that what's required in order to have been successful in those three things, right, are things like discipline, right? is very important. The ability to, you know, stick to itiveness, obviously, you know, having a discrete goal and a, I would also say a very specific and laid out path. Yes. To structure. Reach the objective. There's and a lot of structure. That's exactly right. And this is a great point that when you look at someone who is successful in one area, like let's say an individual contributor. Yep. And now we want to look for a leader to take over the team. And we often look at the individual contributor that has the best results. And we still do this today, where instead of looking at the requirements of leadership, not the requirements of individual contribution. And that's what this guy did. He did great stuff as an individual contributor in, in school, in the military. It's, I don't take any of that away. That's right. But none of that is transferable to the skills that are needed in entrepreneurship. I, I, I have to rephrase that. That's a mistake. I, I said none of it, and that's not true. The Correct. discipline, the, the dedication, the persistence, all of that's necessary. That's right, yep. But there are other aspects that go way beyond that in terms of creativity, market understanding, research, people. What do people want? Things like that. None of that that he have to do in um especially in getting his degrees none of that that's exactly right yep yeah we we assign value to certain things that outweighs 
uh, other areas that are necessary, right? Um, that have a corollary value to per, per, to both performance and satisfaction and role. And so that so, brings us back to bias, doesn't that's it? That's exactly 100%. If you put more weight on stuff that is not, shouldn't be weighted, but it, it's bias. Yeah. 100%. So how do you, yep, yep. how do people overcome that? How do we yeah. overcome that? So, so being oh, number one is awareness, right? As okay. I, as I uh, said before. So when, when you are aware um, of a, any particular challenge, right? Especially social ones though, for instance, um, you have the opportunity to, uh, to change, right? So number one is awareness. And the second one is having a very specific plan. So for um, a job and what, you know, the way that we help people to describe a role is actually a business plan for a job. It is a time bound, right? Plan of things that need to be accomplished right, as well as a very detailed description of what the what the environment is like. And all of those elements, right, those inform a very, very specific, or it, I was going to say simple, actually, scorecard. You know, the other thing that's interesting, too, and, and, I, and I share this information with people all the time, that if people who make records of their decisions are better decision makers. Hmm. Interesting, right? What gets measured gets done. If you That's know what exactly good decisions, right. bad decisions, and how you got there, you can assess my decision-making effectiveness. Makes all kinds of sense. That's Who does exactly. that? Uh, none of us. Very, very <laughs> few people. I, I, you know what's interesting? I, I definitely, I, I drink my own Kool-Aid or eat, <laughs> eat my own dog food, whatever you want to say. Uh, and I know other people, uh, you know, do as well. I mean, some, some folks who, you know, people have different, uh, certainly opinions of folks like Ray Dalio and so on, right? But those are individuals um, who make records of their decisions. And you can get very, very structured with this, or it can be very simple. Honestly, the more structured it is, it does at a certain point, right? The, the effect, if you will, on the, on the decision uh, becomes less and less the more complicated it gets. Um, but a structured decision and a scorecard, and by making, as you're interviewing, as you're evaluating candidate, the fact that they went to Stanford, or, you know, Yale or wherever, okay, that is something that's important, right? I mean, somebody who comes from that background who, who earned that achievement, right? Uh, that's something to be of value, right? But what, when you put these, put the, all of these elements down on, on paper, right? Um, what happens is that is an element and it's important, but you're not assigning a higher value to Stanford than you are, you know, overcoming, any different kind of business problem, right? That you might, you know, happen to face, you know, in the role. Does that make sense? Yeah. So one of the things I, I'll say in, in measuring decisions that uh, we do a lot in our leadership programs is simply it's a qualitative measurement. Right. Starting yep. to write a journal is people keeping a journal so that qualitatively they can go back and look at the things that were important to them on these different days, what decisions they made, but just a short journal every day. One of the things from positive psychology that Martin Slegman taught us is to write every day three things that went well and why. It's not just writing, you know, being grateful for the things that went well, but also to describe why. And what we find from leaders is there's always some significant steps in the why that created the outcome that went well. Some things that they did last week, some the decisions that they made today, and it starts to develop a positive mood that actually, if you do this at, in the evening, three things that went well and why, 
do it for a week, the positive feeling will stay with you for 30 days. And that, that will also be a qualitative way to, as you say, to kind of track some decisions. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You'll figure out, right? So everything, when we yeah. talk about um, that a, a hire, right? A hiring decision needs to be a rational, thoughtful decision. And by making a scorecard ahead of time and by actually using that scorecard, right? Um, and then keeping that, um, uh, you will, what will happen over time is your decisions will get better and better because you'll discover over that over a, you know, a period of time what areas or elements have a higher corollary um, value to success in hiring. And right. some things that you thought had a high corollary value, you find they, they do not. But because you've written it down and because it's something that can be examined and looked at, right, and, and thought about again, um, then you have the opportunity to change. And you do, and people do change. This has a this has a such a massive positive effect um, on on organizations and hiring decisions that is phenomenal, and it has a massive positive effect on diversity because when you're focused again on when you have a forward thinking view, when you're thinking about solving business problems, right, over a period of time in order to accomplish something, every area, if you will, um, starts to melt away. And you can be, um, it gives people an opportunity to be really forward thinking. People who hire, according to this, have far more diverse teams than people do not. They have more, uh, depending on, you know, the original team, but if we're talking about men and women, they have more women on their team. Every area of diversity that we talk about, right, and is, is important. Teams who hire this way have, have fantastically and beautifully diverse teams. Because yeah, based on what I'm hearing you say is we become aware of our bias we overcome that bias by looking at the capabilities that we're looking for. We create a scorecard around that and we hire against it. That's right. And by being aware that we might be biased, even in that process, having multiple people, and I always say you need multiple people with multiple interviews and situations uh, over a period of time to hire the right people. You don't just do it on one interview. And you get different opinions about their assessment of capabilities and personality and all these other things yep. that helps draw the science and a little bit of the art. There's always a little bit of art in the hiring process. And I understand you're trying to make it more scientific and it's been, you've been very successful doing that, increasing retention rates, increasing uh, the success of the hiring process um, has, has been something that you have demonstrated in a lot of organizations. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, it's interesting when you said that about art and I, I don't shy away from that conversation at all. I talk about combining the art and science of hiring because the art, and, and this is something that I advocate in any business strategy at all, is that there should be green space. There should be plenty of green space, right, for different people to apply their own personalities, their own styles, uh, you know, et cetera, right? So even talking about like the art, uh, if you will, of, of, of hiring, it's your personality. It's, it's you, right? It's the organization that you represent. It's the other peers, you know, and the other folks who are, are part of that team, right? Um, you know, that's, that is the art, if you will, right? And by applying some simple, straightforward science, people have a, such a greater uh, experience as well, and they have a far, far greater chance of probability of, of success. Um, it's interesting. You know, they actually enjoy it. You know, a lot of people hate hiring. People hate interviewing. 
you'll never uh, find somebody who has uh, who has interviewed for a job. Uh, obviously, at the current t- time, and you know, this I'm sure people are listening to this in the future, right? We're in the middle of the COVID uh, right healthcare crisis here today. Um, so it's different today than it was three, four months ago. But even three, four months ago in 2019, people hated, they hate interviewing. Why? And, and hiring managers, they hate to hire. <laughs> Not everybody, but I think of it as a nightmare, right? It doesn't have to be that grueling process. And if you approach it in this uh, systematic way, um, then people actually find they can enjoy it. Well, yeah. So as you talk about, they hate it. The reason they hate it is because they don't have a path to success and it's uh, it's a crapshoot. Yep. And I don't know anybody that likes to spend a lot of time and effort going through a bunch of resumes, trying to find a candidate, uh, being unsuccessful, even in the candidates that we find that are the best to hire them and not knowing whether it's going to be good or not. And 70% of the time it's a bad hire. Right. Uh, and uh, you, I know that your statistics can more than double that, but it also creates a sense of confidence in going into the interviewing process. 100%. So it, it changes our attitude. And, and it, that's, it, that's the real important part of this is it's scientific, changes our attitude going in. We feel more confident. We double our success rate. Who wouldn't want to do that? Yeah, I, I don't know. I think everyone should. You know, it's interesting when we have the more experienced people have, we have a we have a T-shirt, and it says, "Use your higher brain; it's smarter than your gut." But here's what's interesting: the more experience that people have, um, the better that their gut is. Yes. And so, when we talk about your automatic decision making process, we talk about writing down those original perceptions of people, uh, and then getting better at it over time. You, what you realize is, is that let's just say your your gut decision, if you will, right is um is right some some percentage of the time right what what someone actually does is they discover the things about their gut feeling that are that have a positive effect right that are based on on uh, on business successes and those thing about their those things about their gut decisions if you will that are uh that are unproductive and so they can abandon them because they know what they are yeah, so again, you're connecting the criteria to the decision and seeing what works and what doesn't. That's so, exactly right. You know, David, we could talk for hours. Uh, <laughs> I know, uh, but uh, I think that we've learned a lot of a lot of things about hiring bias and how we can overcome it. And what I what I want to do is uh, end here today, and uh, I want to encourage our listeners. Uh, to uh, reach out to David Nason at HireBrain, H-I-R-E-B-R-A-I-N, HireBrain.com, and find out how he does it. You could uh, double your, your retention rate and improve your process. And I'm going to put that, uh, that website uh, for David right in our show notes because I think this is a powerful service that you have to offer to people. And whether people listen to this podcast or not, and I hope they do. But if they don't, I want them to contact you because this is this is important. Hiring the right people is the most important job of a leader and then developing them moving forward. But if you've got the the raw material, success is going to be a lot higher, isn't it? Absolutely. I, I appreciate it. And I'm, as you as you can tell, I'm I'm hugely passionate about, uh, you know, this subject uh, yeah. as well. Well, that's why we had you on twice, because it's a, it's a big subject. It's important. And uh, I want to thank you for your time, David. Thank you thank for you. Your, your insight and 
the great knowledge that you you offer us and I highly recommend that those of you that are listening to this podcast that you get uh, in touch with David and learn about our biases, put it aside and hire better. So thank you, David. Great. Thank you very much. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. And this is Leading from the Front. Thank you. Thanks for being with us on Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit statarius.com, S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S.com. Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. For more of his music, visit peterkatz.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.